The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, February 25th. In today's news, a stock market plunge underscores the political risks for President Trump of the coronavirus. Harvey Weinstein's conviction is a breakthrough for prosecuting sexual assault. And Mars's magnetic field turns out to be much stronger than we thought. But first, the big idea. The mayor of tiny Burlington, Vermont, was back from Nicaragua in July 1985 and eager to share the good news. The country's Soviet-backed government, forged via armed rebellion, was cutting infant mortality, reducing illiteracy, and redistributing land to peasant farmers. Its Sandinista leaders, branded terrorists by the U.S. government, impressed him with their intelligence and sincerity. Three years later, Bernie Sanders was fresh off the plane from Moscow, where he had honeymooned, reveling in the beauty of the land and the contentedness of the people. And a year after that, he returned from Cuba, having tapped into a revolutionary spirit that he called far deeper and more profound than I understood it to be. With Sanders now surging to the top of the Democratic presidential field, those three-decade-old impressions introduced a volatile new element in the race Monday as rivals reacted to Sanders' decision to defend those past remarks, not disclaim them. Asked about his favorable reviews of Fidel Castro's Cuba during a 60 Minutes interview that aired Sunday night on CBS, Sanders said the communist leader deserves criticism for the authoritarian nature of his government, and praise where it's due, including for what he called a massive literacy program. The comments offered instant fodder for opponents who had already been sharing the old clips and highlighted the risk to a candidate with a track record of sympathy for communist and socialist governments that's unlike any other recent or really ever Democratic nominee. Rivals seized on the videos to portray the senator from Vermont as naive, a possible preview of attack lines ahead of tonight's Democratic debate here in Charleston, and of the barrage Sanders is likely to endure in the general election if he makes it that far. Mike Bloomberg said Fidel Castro left a dark legacy of forced labor camps, religious repression, widespread poverty, firing squads, and the murder of thousands of his own people. But sure, Bernie, let's talk about his literacy program. Pete Buttigieg compared Sanders to Trump, saying that after four years of giving dictators a pass, the United States needs a president who will be extremely clear in standing against regimes that violate human rights abroad. The fact that Sanders' long-ago travels in the communist world have become an issue in the 2020 race reflects how unorthodox a choice he would be to lead the Democratic Party. Sanders has promised to remake the party in his far-left image as a democratic socialist, and he argues that his vision for a political revolution is best exemplified by thriving democracies, first-world societies like Denmark. Yet, in the 1980s, during the dying days of the Cold War, Sanders indulged a fascination with far more disruptive and divisive strains of a socialist ideology he's embraced throughout his adult life. Returning home from visits to some of the U.S.'s most avowed enemies, Sanders offered some criticism, but also plenty of praise in Vermont community television recordings. Many of these videos have been in storage for decades, including during his 2016 campaign. And even after they've been posted online over the last few months, they've remained relatively unknown. 
Now, Sanders' comments are coming back to life as opponents say that his warm feelings toward his hosts decades ago make him vulnerable to attack and reveal a soft spot for left-wing despots. Sanders has consistently pushed back against accusations that he was duped, insisting that his travels were about building bridges and avoiding conflict. His campaign says in a statement that Sanders is proud he spoke out against, quote, Ronald Reagan's dirty wars. Sanders isn't the first would-be president to confront scrutiny over long-ago travels. Remember back in 1992, Bill Clinton faced questions over his 1969 trip to the Soviet Union. John Kerry, the Democrats' 2004 nominee, took heat from the GOP for a 1985 visit to Nicaragua, the same year that Sanders visited. But Clinton was in Moscow as a student tourist, while Kerry went to Managua as a senator, preparing to vote on whether to back Reagan's plan to spend millions of dollars funding the ruling Sandinista's rivals, the Contras. While there, Kerry challenged the government over its curbs on individual liberties, and he carried back to Washington a proposal for peace. The reasons the mayor of Burlington, which has a population of 38,000, would repeatedly cross the world's great geopolitical chasm are less straightforward. Sanders' infatuation with revolutionary left-wing movements, particularly those in Latin America, was longstanding, and it became a key feature of his stint as mayor. He has recalled feeling very excited by Castro's 1959 revolution, which played out during his teens. As a college student at the University of Chicago, he was a member of the Young People's Socialism League. He spent his 20s and 30s as a radical activist, failed third-party candidate, and sometime carpenter. But it wasn't until Sanders became mayor in 1980 at the age of 39 that he began putting his ideas into practice. And while many of his local policies hewed to the conventional, he redeveloped the city's waterfront, and he attracted a minor league baseball team. His forays into foreign policy stand out. At the time, the Reagan administration was zealously fighting the Cold War, and Democrats on Capitol Hill were following along largely in principle, if not always in the particulars. Sanders saw an opportunity to transform Burlington into what he said at the time was the de facto capital for an alternative foreign policy, one that viewed the left-wing revolutions less as a threat than as an opportunity. In the early years of his mayorality, that meant organizing a referendum disavowing U.S. support for the military regime in El Salvador and condemning the U.S. invasion of Grenada, which toppled a communist government. Later, once he had proved himself adept at administering the city and got comfortably reelected, it meant more and more travel to countries regarded as adversaries in Washington. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, the Dow Jones Industrial Average sank by more than 1,000 points yesterday, or 3.6%, after Wall Street interpreted new clusters of the coronavirus in South Korea, Italy, and Iran as a sign that the respiratory illness has outraced confinement efforts. The technology-heavy Nasdaq fell by 4%. Interest rates are in negative territory in Europe and at near-historic lows still here in the U.S. And while making credit less expensive, the Fed's standard tool for combating a slump may offset some of the financial upheaval, it can do little to remedy the broken supply chains or ease individuals' fears of contagion. Trump weighed in after the markets closed yesterday with an upbeat tweet proclaiming that the virus is very much under control and urging investors to jump back into the stock market. Meanwhile, the White House sent a formal request to Congress for an emergency $1.8 billion to bolster the response. That includes $1.25 billion in new funding for the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the ability to transfer an additional $535 million that was previously set aside to fight Ebola and use it for the coronavirus instead. 
The request reflects the fast-evolving nature of this crisis. Just last week, the administration insisted that no additional funds were necessary. Democrats immediately slammed this new request as too small, calling it woefully insufficient to protect Americans and criticizing the administration for trying to raid money from other public health accounts. The Trump administration's disjointed handling of the outbreak has faced mounting criticism as even the president's allies have scrambled to catch up and take preventative steps while seeking to reassure the public, at times struggling to explain their decisions and also offering an inconsistent message. For a president who is governed by tweets and circus, a potential global health crisis that blunts economic growth could expose one of Trump's main weaknesses as he prepares to face voters in November. Number two, Harvey Weinstein was found guilty yesterday on two charges of sexual assault. A New York jury determined that Weinstein forced oral sex on a former production assistant at his apartment in July 2006, and he raped a former aspiring actress at a hotel in 2013. He was found not guilty of the most severe charges, predatory sexual assault, which would have acknowledged a pattern that included forcing sex on another actress in 1993 and 1994. Scheduling is sentenced for March 11th. The judge can give him up to 29 years. After the verdict was announced, Weinstein was handcuffed and taken to jail. His bail was revoked. Weinstein's lawyers promised that they will appeal the conviction on the basis of several concerns, including the amount of media attention the case got and the fact that the three supporting accusers were permitted to testify even though charges weren't brought on their behalf. The appeal must be filed after sentencing. Tarana Burke, the original creator of the Me Too movement, said Weinstein operated with impunity and without remorse for decades in Hollywood, yet it still took years and millions of voices raised for one man to be held accountable by the justice system. Weinstein lawyer Donna Rotuno told reporters after the verdict was read that her client, quote, took it like a man, and then she said, this isn't over. Advocates hailed the Weinstein conviction as a breakthrough because most sexual assault cases that enter the legal system are more likely to fit the stereotypical paradigm of stranger rape involving a woman who's assaulted by someone she doesn't know, resulting in apparent physical injury and potentially DNA evidence. The Weinstein case, in contrast, presented a far more complicated portrait of what sadly is often the reality of sexual violence. Number three, NASA's Mars lander called InSight, like InSight, but InSight, is on a mission to probe the red planet's rocky guts. A suite of new studies published Monday in the journals Nature Geoscience and Nature Communications describe the results of the robot's first 10 months of exploration. And there's some cool stuff. Mars trembles with lots of seismic activity, and the planet is much more strongly magnetic than experts predicted. InSight Touchdown in November 2018 after surviving seven minutes of terror. That was the descent during which mission control could do nothing but wait from when the lander met the Martian atmosphere to when it touched down on the planet's surface. The robot landed in a dirt-filled crater nicknamed Homestead Hollow. There, the robot deployed most of its instruments and has been transmitting data back to Earth every day. In April 2019, the robot made the first ever detection of seismic activity known as a Marsquake. Get it? A Marsquake. They can't call it an earthquake because it's not seismic activity on Earth. By the end of last September, InSight had detected 174 Marsquakes. 24 of those rumbled up from the planet's mantle and were relatively large, 
between 3 to 4 on the magnitude scale, roughly similar to the Richter scale we use here. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine says that this data can supply human explorers with knowledge about Mars's natural resources, as well as its dangers, such as asteroid impacts, for what could someday be a manned mission to the Red Planet. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, February 25th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.